This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Boz Digital Labs, and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. You know, I, I just like space. I like having the room. Ideally, you're in a room that sounds good that you're recording in. Being able to play with the distance to the instrument so that you're getting more of the ambience of the room with the mics without having to add a second room pair. To me, that it just adds another level of realism to the, to the recording so that you're not hearing this direct thing that you either have to affect later, it's just direct sounding. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac, the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Boz Digital Labs, offering you the coolest plugins for your mixes, like the Hoser XT and Plus 10 dB Signature Series. You can transform your drums with Sasquatch Kick Machine or Transgressor, get massive bass with Big Clipper, or add width and depth using Mongoose and Imperial Delay. All Boz Digital Labs plugins are available as fully functioning, no time limit free trials, so you can check them out on your mixes right now. Just go to bozdigitallabs.com or click the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with the unique Golden Drop capsule design. The Black Hole Series BH1S and BH2 microphones with the hole in the middle for a one-of-a-kind shock mount combine innovative industrial design with careful craftsmanship to bring a world-class sound to your studio, resulting in a level of quality and detail in your recordings that you won't find in other mics. Go to jzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited-time coupon ROCKSTAR right now to get an incredible 50% off. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Brandon Bell, a Grammy-winning recording engineer known for his work with bluegrass, Americana, and country music artists. Originally from central Arkansas, Brandon moved to Tennessee to study recording at Middle Tennessee State University, same place I went to school. He got his start after that interning for and later assisting renowned recording engineer and producer Gary Pachoza. With Gary, he was twice nominated for the Best Engineered Non-Classical Grammy for Alan Jackson's like Red on a Rose and Sarah Jarose's Bluegrass album, Follow Me Down. Brandon later received a Grammy in 2013 for Best Bluegrass Album for his work on the Steep Canyon Rangers album, Nobody Knows You. His other credits at the time include Earl Scruggs, Allison Krauss and Union Station, Chris Thiele, Daryl Scott, Dirks Bentley, and Blackberry Smoke. And in 2014, Brandon was hired to be studio manager and chief engineer at Southern Ground Nashville 
a beautiful Nashville recording studio owned by Zach Brown. Brandon has expanded into production with artists like Sam Lewis, and he also enjoys working with producer Dave Cobb on records for Robert Randolph, Dylan LeBlanc, Dylan Carmichael, Anderson East, Brent Cobb, William Prince, Chris Isaac, and John Prine. And throughout his career, Brandon has been fortunate to work with many talented artists, musicians, engineers, and producers. In Brandon's own words, the best part of the job continues to be that moment when you know you've captured on tape precisely what the artist was trying to communicate. When you've recorded, when what you've recorded is meaningful and can be shared with those outside of the studio walls. Recording music of any genre is equal parts art and science as it should be. Also, I want to give a, a shout out to Mark Rubel once again for introducing Brandon and I. Mark's been uh, awesome at bringing on great guests onto this podcast. So thanks for that, Mark. Please welcome Brandon Bell to Recording Studio Rockstars. Brandon, are you ready to rock, dude? Yeah, man. Let's do it. <laughs> great to have you here, man. Man, it's great to be here. Such a cool spot. <laughs> thanks very much. Um, you are working out of a beautiful studio, man. Uh, Southern Ground. We were talking about this before the podcast. But, you know, I remember going over there when it was um, a master link. Yeah, I master it was link, called, right? right? Yeah, before you guys kind of transformed it into this wonderful place. But what a beautiful place, man. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's I mean, every day it's an inspiring place to work. It You know, no matter what the artist or what style of music you're working with, whether it's a studio session band or, you know, just a rock band bringing in all their own stuff. Um, it's just a, you know... It's an adventure every day, and I love it. Yeah, nice. Well, um, tell us a little bit more about who who you are. I mean, you came, so we're fellow alum from MTSU. Yeah, right. Awesome. Um, you know, I grew up in Arkansas and uh, a small town, and and you know, kind of went through the the ranks, I guess, of just learning different instruments as a kid, trying to figure out how to how to make instruments make sounds and make them do what you want them to do on a certain level. Uh, kind of playing guitar, bass, and drums. And then uh, you're doing some recording too while you were learning. Yeah, music. trying to yeah had a, between a buddy and a mine and I, uh, the two of us had a a band. You know, we would play all the instruments and kind of multi-track the thing with a little four-track Porta Studio or nice. whatever it was. Starting out on tape. I, I think we wore out a couple of those things over you know the course of three or four years, but uh, you know bouncing stuff back and forth from cassettes and any way we could figure out how to do it, but. Uh, but yeah, I went to went to college as a music major initially at, at UCA University of Central Arkansas, and uh, was you know quickly learned that it was you know a lot a lot deeper than I had realized as far as the musicianship of professionals. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I you know I I kind of bailed off of the the music major. Uh, path. Oh, right. So you were studying to be the musician first. Yeah, that was kind of the, I mean, somehow, somehow in high school, I had this dream of being a studio player and I really didn't know what that meant. I just knew I liked playing music and could generally pick up things relatively quickly, I guess. That's impressive. Um, I didn't even know that studio players existed. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't, I I forget. I think, uh, I think there was a guy that I I worked at a motorcycle shop with that, that, played bass on some gospel records. And he had kind of made mention of like these session guys. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, so, and he actually kind of took us into a small studio out near our hometown and uh, got to sit in and eventually got to play on some stuff while I was still in high school. And uh, it was just amazing, you know, even though it wasn't by any standard, any kind of music that I really wanted to have anything to do with at the time, it was still 
pretty dang awesome to be. But, and you got to see locally, you got to see the inside of a what was a real recording studio. And yeah, everything. yeah. I mean, it was the you know the space was pretty well built. The equipment was fairly pedestrian. You know, at that point, you know, we were all just geeking out about sixteen track Mackies anyway. So to have a yeah. to have a studio that had out it was like a digital eight bus or some version of a of a Mackie as the front end that just seemed like heaven, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, it, looking back on that, it's it's a little bit comical. But even, you know, it just goes to show that you can even make cool cool sounds and, and records with even that kind of a setup. So Hey, you know, I still believe in the fact that the most important thing about making music and making records is that it's exciting and fun. Because, yeah. I mean, what else are you left with right. in the process, right. you know? Right, I mean, I'm a... I've it, it took me a long time to really figure it out as a kid growing up looking at gear and looking through catalogs and just kind of lusting after stuff. Um you know, you you feel like that's the that's the magic silver bullet of the whole thing. It's like once I get this piece, I'll be able to make these great sounds and right and right. uh and man it being really a really hard lesson that that's really not how it works. <laughs> um kind of come into the realization that if you have somebody that can convey the right emotion, be it with their voice or an instrument or whatever, the gear is, you know, less than 5% of the whole equation or something, if you really want to break it down to a number. Um, and, 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 you know, just the, just the evidence and listening to a bunch of records, there's great records that have been made with 57s and a four track, and there's terrible records that have been made with a 251 and you know, the so greatest, true. like Steven's tape machine or whatever, you know, Pro Tools, whatever you've, you know, whatever you think is the most, you know, best sounding setup. So, yeah, just really trying to break it down in the most basic form of, of excitement and energy. So you came to Nashville, went to MTSU, <laughs> did the whole recording program there. What are some, you know, what are some some hindsight takeaways for you about the whole recording school experience? You know, if you were going to pass on a message to somebody who's wondering about recording school, what were the things that you really learned there? What were the things that, you know, you didn't learn until you were out of school working in music itself? Yeah. I'm, you know, the schools, there's so many of them now, um, for better or for worse, but I, I feel like they're all similar in the way that you really get out of them what you put into them. So if, if, if that's your path, if that's what you want to do, you really have to fully commit yourself to that program. So showing up, you know, at the studio, even when you don't have booked studio time, just being a fly on the wall, watching other people work, um, you know, figuring out the the social aspect of it, because some people don't want to be helped. Some people are really trying to figure things out on their own and don't want you to jump in. But learning a tactful way to say, hey, you know, if, if you need anything or want anything, I'd love to help any way I can. Or, um, you know, just finding a way to jump in if, if you know how to help out. Um, that's always a, it's always a helpful skill to learn. Do you remember people in school being really into different styles of music too? Like, oh man, you kind of, yeah. you kind of go after learning the, the kind of music that you're really into. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up listening to, you know, kind of blues and classic rock was, was what I listened to and loved. Um, so that was my background, but coming into school, I started seeing all kinds of crazy stuff that I'd never really experienced before being from a small town in Arkansas. I mean, 
we didn't really hear of Nirvana until after Kurt, Kurt Cobain had already died. You wow. know? I mean, it's, <laughs> oh, it just took a little story. bit of time to get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. So, what about the Grateful Dead? Did you, did you know about the Grateful Dead, though? Um, loosely aware, but not. it wasn't something I was really into. I mean, what, it kinda, what was the band that you remember really being a big fan of back then? I mean, then and still to this day, it would be Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. Okay, I mean, right, it just it. wore all of those records out. It's classic rock. Yeah. Um, you know, of course the Beatles, my dad was a huge Beatles fan. We listened to, uh, we listened to Abbey Road probably more than any other record growing up. That was, we were working on cars in the garage or whatever. We were listening to Abbey Road. That's awesome. Occasionally Revolver, but mostly Abbey Road. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, and just seeing all the, all the different styles of music at school and diving into records that, I mean, I just wanted to listen to stuff that was made in Nashville to see, I was trying to figure out what the internship would be. Like, if I were to do that, who would I want to work with? Where would I want to be if I had a say in it? So, I, you know, I started diving through records and, and bluegrass kept coming up for whatever reason. Um, I, somebody had told me when I was in high school that I really needed to check out Allison Krauss and Union Station. And that, you know, they were still pretty, pretty young at that point. Um, but uh, I finally did when I moved to to Nashville and... Dang, those records just sound so good, you know. And and I kept coming back to that. I wasn't necessarily a fan of bluegrass, but just from a sonic standpoint, Alison Krauss's uh, "Forget About It" record. Dang, <laughs> I mean, is it now those records that uh, Gary Pachosa? Yeah, so Gary Gary recorded all of those, and uh, you know, Allison produced a fair amount. I think Pat Bergeson produced the "Forget About It" record. But I mean, that record in particular, the the musicianship, the songs, the performances, the sounds, everything is just so on point. Yeah. Allison has this incredible laser beam pitch singing yeah. voice too. Just yeah. Just angelic, she, pure tone. I don't know why I wouldn't, it didn't really catch me on the recording so much, but she sings so incredibly quietly. It's very soft. Really? Very soft. Like at some points I just feel like, I, I, how is anything even coming out of her, out of her body because it's just so so soft. But you know that's how she really, um, you know, she just has such an amazing connection with the emotional part of the song, which I mean that's to me the most important thing happening with any song, um, especially if it's kind of sad or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I know she'll she'll sing and play violin too. Is her violin playing sort of a matched volume to the vocal level, or is it like singing is quiet, the fiddles maybe a little louder? Do you do you remember? I any feel of that? like fiddle is is a little bit louder, but she even compared to other fiddle players, I feel like she plays softer. I mean, she just has an amazing touch and feel for for her instrument, whether it's the violin or her voice. She just understands it on this extremely fundamental level better than anybody I, yeah. I've ever heard, I think. Yeah. Um, I've worked with Victor Krauss, mm -hmm. her brother, and, um, you know, he was talking about those guys growing up in, I guess, just south of Chicago, you know, and I was like, I was just curious, you know, here's a couple of people who just have brilliant musical abilities, and I was sort of curious where that comes from. And, um, you know, just stories about, like, you know, taking piano lessons when they were five years old or whatever. And yeah. Just having a lot of music around the house. They listen to a lot of Def Leppard, from what I, from what <laughs> yeah, I gather. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, you know, uh, talk a little bit about your first experiences with Gary. You know, you you did the recording school thing. Um, 
you know, what were some of the things you learned that you didn't learn in school where you're like, oh, they didn't, they didn't teach me about this in, in recording school? Yeah, man. Specific examples would be difficult. Um, I mean, there were, there were some basics that I, I don't think about a lot anymore because it's all kind of second nature. But like reading a chart was pretty helpful just to have a basic understanding of what it looks like, what the numbers do, not necessarily understanding the pitches and, and the, the differences and why they're, you know, hearing the difference between a one and a five or whatever. I feel it. I know that, you know, I knew the difference at that point, but um, walking into a session and immediately having to follow the chart and drop session markers or, or write tape times on the on the chart so you knew where to rewind or the assistant knew where to rewind to. Right, because at that point, you know, we weren't all Pro Tools Yeah, I mean, there were a yet, lot right? of, even then there were a couple studios where Pro Tools was an extra rental. You had a radar system in the room um, and that was what you got to work on unless you paid the extra rental for Pro Tools, which yeah, yeah. now just seems ridiculous. Um, but uh, Now but you yeah, pay the just, extra rental for the tape machine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, having basic understandings of, of, you know, chart reading, basic studio etiquette, um, I had a pretty good foundation of, of Pro Tools editing because even before I was in college, I was a dialogue editor for a radio program. Oh, cool. So a syndicated radio program out of, out of Little Rock. So I did a fair amount of editing on like Pro Tools 4 or 5 or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, um, Back when editing was for real men and women. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, I feel like even, even today that, that I probably learned – 90, 95% of what I do on a daily basis, doing it, yeah. learning from Gary, learning from other people, paying attention to what's happening in the studio, trying to figure out what's, what works, what doesn't. Let, um, let me ask you more about charts for just a sec, because I, I like to dig into mm -hmm. the, um, some of these basics too. Um, it, when you're doing sessions, is it pretty routine for somebody to come in and have charts for musicians and to, to hand you as the engineer a chart as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, typically. Um, or do we have to ask for, hey, you guys mind if I have a chart too? <laughs> it it depends. Sometimes people are just flying and don't yeah. think about it. And um, other times, yeah, in most cases, the band's writing the chart in the studio. Right. Kind of on the fly anyway. Sort of hearing. Uh, I've seen, you know, examples where somebody plays a recording of the demo of the song and yeah. then the band's sitting and then they write the chart and then that gets copied. You know, somebody goes to the copier at that point, right? Yeah, right. And it's usually the engineer, the assistant, kind of whoever's available. So they, the assistants all kind of know to toss a chart on the console. So um, <laughs> what is the value of a chart for an engineer? If you don't have to play the chords, Man, why do you want to have a chart? Positional reference, you know, you, you know where that just speed and efficiency in the session is kind of critical to knowing where you're at on the chart. So, Do you remember the kind of conversations that we used to have before we had a chart in front of us where we were trying to... Like, do you remember there was that part, that short part that happened before that other part and somewhere in the middle of the song? <laughs> right before the Meadleys. Go before the yeah, Meadleys. Right before the Meadleys. <laughs> it's always interesting to me the way that you understand a song. You know, the nice thing about a chart is even if it was just a bunch of boxes drawn on a piece of paper, at least yeah. you'd be like, let's go to the third box, you know, right. or something like that. But before that, you know, you, you listen to somebody who's focused on the lyrics talk about the song, and they have a totally different understanding of when when something begins and ends or 
you know, what part of the song you're in versus somebody who's thinking about the different chords. Yeah. Are, are we talking about a lyrical line or a chord chart line, you know? Yeah. <laughs> line three or, or of the, the drummer. Song could it's be like it's on the one on. or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. So, Rockstars, I encourage you to come up with any kind of chart you can think about just so that everybody has a, a common language for talking about the, the song session. You'll save a lot yeah. of time, right? I mean, the Nashville number system really does work well. Um, kind of the, it's, uh, it's shining glory, I suppose, is the fact that you can kind of transpose the song into any key and the song remain or the chart remains relevant through, you know, every change. So, you know, there's plenty of resources on YouTube and, and all around for, for the Nashville number system. So it's interesting because that the number system being an ability to change the key is always like the classic story of charts. But like so rarely do we ever change the damn key on the session. Right. You know? right we don't right. really change the key <laughs> right, that right. much. But I what what it was interesting for me is it really when you see um a song laid out in chart form and you're like, that's a six minor, that's a two minor. It, it, I think it helps your brain like understand more and more and more how to understand the chord progressions. Whereas yeah. if it's all just chord letters, you know, you can do that. You can understand it too, but it doesn't, you know, as soon as it's in a different key, it's not as obvious. Yeah, right, right. Um, cool. All right. Well, enough about charts. So um, <laughs> stuff stuff with Gary. You know, uh, Lex Price is somebody that I've worked with here yeah. in the past. And um, he had a group, interesting thing to say about Gary once where he said that like, He's like, Gary really loves the AKG 451. And um, I was, was curious about that. What were some things that you learned working with Gary about, you know, recording instruments, getting great sounds? Um, does he love the AKG 451? <laughs> <laughs> you know, any, any stories? I don't know that I would say he loves it. I don't know if he loves any mic. Maybe he does. I don't know. KM54 is pretty special. Um, that's, the you know... Neumann small diaphragm tube mic that's got an AC seven one K tube circuit and uh just beautifully natural top end yeah. on anything. You yeah. know, put it in front of any source and it's gonna sound pretty dang great. Yeah. Um but I mean And I, also just just to ask <clears throat> this question, um, you've probably had some great experience on a on a wide variety of microphones at this mm -hmm. point. I know you do a lot of acoustical instrument recordings, and so you really know what sounds, what things sound like. Have you discovered some modern, you know, when we hear stories about old vintage mics, uh, although I don't know if the KM54 is made by Neumann now or not, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I imagine it's an older one. Yeah. Sometimes we're like, oh man, so there must not be that many out there, or I don't know. Um, have you discovered some new mics that you got real excited about that that sort of have some of these qualities as well? Um, anybody anybody that you've been uh, digging on lately that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I don't know the the small the KM fifty four thing is really difficult to nail because of uh, I guess the nickel capsules are difficult to make expensive maybe oh, okay all right Take um it. and there's really something special i think about the nickel more than the tube circuit and whatever um but i i know there's a lot of people that are really making strong strides and in, in building something that's in that vein and i'm sure there's great options i yeah, just don't yeah all right dig in. i cool. don't dig down that yeah but that was that, some cool insights see i didn't know anything about nickel capsules yeah i mean so. from from the you know on the large diaphragm side of things the we've got that upton 251 and I mean, blindly, he tuned it and it sounds like a matched pair to our vintage 251. Wow. I mean, it's ridiculous how close they sound to each other. 
Um, and what's the story with Upton? Is that a so local? Upton is the uh, Dallas Upton is the is the builder, the owner of the company. He also does Vintech Audio, um, and he just felt like he could do it. He's he's kind of one of those guys that is uh, incredibly bright and with this you know can do attitude and engineering back background, I guess um, that he just felt like it was possible to recreate something like that. And uh, he machines everything in-house. In, where are those uh, guys? Are they out I in think uh, West Coast or something? Where are they? Like Fort Lauderdale or Tallahassee or okay. something. Right, kind right. of northern right, Florida dig, somewhere, I think. Take it. Um, I like Florida. It's warm down there. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Maybe there's some sun. We haven't had a lot of that here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. We, we really haven't had a cold winter in Nashville, yeah. though. I don't think we... I think it's we got a been, dusting of snow it's once. It's been pretty light. Like but, uh, you know, but Dallas builds incredible stuff. I mean, the Vintec stuff is all incredibly usable and, and very yeah. much like the Neve that yep. they're kind of shooting yep. for. Um, rock solid builds. I remember the Vintec stuff sort of, for me, first appearing on the scene, probably like 2000s or something yeah, like right, that. Yeah, right, right. And it was like, you know, it was one of those early, um, or one of the first companies that I was aware of that was making um, replicas of other kinds of, yeah, know, classic Neve mic pre's and things like that. Right. And it's like, hey, you can afford to get something that's a rack and sounds great and works and, and works. Drag. I mean, we had a we had a few of those Vintech pre's with Gary. We drug those things all over the place and never had an issue. Just yeah. rock solid. Yeah. Um, cool. You know, cool. so the on the on the newer side of things, he's building stuff that's that's perfectly on par with the vintage counterpart. You know, and and I know there's there's more than just him, but Cool. Um, well, I always like to just ask questions like that because, um, you know, we just yeah. accumulate these different little bits of knowledge about right. uh, mics and gear and stuff to check out. So I know there's a lot of cool things out there. I mean, we, we live in a time now where there is just a, a an abundance of great recording gear. Yeah, it's I mean, remarkable. It's like, it, there wasn't that many choices really, you know, back in the past, but now it's like there's so many... Microphone companies and mic preamps. Yeah, the and, 500 series stuff is just kind of off the charts. Yeah, pretty exciting. Um, so I guess a good takeaway is you don't have to worry about knowing all of them and having all of them. You really just need some that are pretty I, good. I, yeah, right? I mean, I believe in in finding stuff that you like the way they sound. Um, I mean, and just having, being able to trust your equipment. Yeah. That's such a huge part of it. Just knowing that, I mean, that was the thing with the Vintex. It's like, it didn't matter where we put those in the car and drug them to me dragging them in out of the car or whatever. Um, everywhere we took them, they were going to sound exactly like we expected them to. Yeah. Um, same with whatever mics we were taking around, like everything kind of had a purpose in the, in the way that, you know, we, we trusted what they sounded like. We knew what they were supposed to do. And um, you put them up in front of any instrument immediately, you know, if there's something wrong with the instrument or something wrong with the equipment. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix mixmasterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. 
So what were some of the uh, those sessions that you remember uh, doing with Gary when you were starting out there? Um, man, some of the, the more fun ones were, you know, going out of town for, for a project. You know, we would go to Asheville to Echo Mountain for a couple records. Yeah. We did a Dirk Smelly record there that I think didn't get released. Um, we a did a record. It's a practice I've record. Done those. I've spent a year yeah. working on a practice record before. Yeah. No, it was, it was a really fun practice record. We had a really great time and, and created some really amazing music. Um, it's entirely possible that we might have even spent a half a million dollars on a practice record before. Very possible. Um, we've, you know, we recorded the Steep Canyon Rangers record out there. Uh, we did a, a Steve Martin record with Steep Canyon Rangers there in Asheville um, that we actually got to record Paul McCartney on, which was pretty ridiculous. Wow. Um, yeah. So you've recorded Paul McCartney. Yeah. No once. way, dude. And it was Tell that story. It's the craziest craziest thing that's probably ever happened. Um but yeah, so we were we we're, you know, in at Echo Mountain in their studio A. Uh I forget what this was, two thousand nine or ten, maybe. This um, is probably when he came to play Bonnaroo too, same or maybe that was a little McCartney later. Not, or, I think McCartney was actually later than that. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. Um, but you know, we were we were set up at the studio in Asheville and uh Steve had a couple guest vocals already in mind for a couple of the songs. Like I think the Dixie Chicks were already lined up to sing on one of the songs and and I'm not sure if this song just came to the table late or he was just kind of still trying to figure out who should sing it. And uh Tony Trishka and, and Gary were kind of co producing, I think. And Tony just said, Hey, you know, maybe it's kind of a silly love song. Maybe we should just throw it out there to McCartney's people and see what happens. And Steve was like, I don't know him. You know, I don't know how to get in touch with him. And Tony was like, well, but you know, other people that probably do. So that kind of got the ball rolling. And, you know, he started emailing people like Lauren Michaels and whatever, and totally hooked it up. And, uh, you know, within, I don't know, within probably a couple hours, he was in direct communication with, with McCartney about uh about singing on this song. So this was like early in the week. We had kind of saved the the Friday of that week as the banjo overdub day to kind of, you know, do whatever repairs we needed for the whole record and then pack up and go home. And so by, you know, by Tuesday we knew we weren't going to need Friday for the repairs day or, you know, whatever we had kind of set it aside for. Steve had kind of set it up with Paul. Paul just said, "I'll I'm in, I'll do it." But I'm not in a place that I can just come to Asheville. Right. So you right. got to come to me if you can do that. Which, you know, Steve was like, if you're in, we're going to find a way to make it work. So that kind of started this crazy That's conversation awesome. of like, you know, helicopters landing on tops of buildings in New York to get him to a studio, whatever, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that probably wouldn't have happened realistically. But we had those conversations anyways. Um, and what we ended up doing, you know, Thursday night, we wrapped up recording. We uh, we packed all of our gear into into Gary's car, and we we woke up early Friday morning, went to the Asheville airport, and got on a private charter and flew to East Hampton, New York. Wow. And uh, got there was a car. We we scoured all of the Hamptons for a studio, and we found a studio. Um, some lady that does a lot of uh, like Broadway voiceover stuff mm. in her. It was a home studio. And uh, you just needed to record one voice. We so just needed one voice. So it was kind of, you know, wasn't necessarily ideal, but it was enough to do the job for sure. And uh, so we set this thing up. We had somebody 
come and cook lunch for us while we were there getting set up. And uh, Paul came in with his, I mean, he came in straight from the beach with his kids. He had just shorts on and had his guitar in one hand and like an egg sandwich and foil in the other hand. And that was it. Like no, no people, no posse, no manager, just Paul McCartney came in the door and That's so cool. tuned his guitar up, told a couple jokes, you know, shook everybody's hand, said, hey. And I mean, it was just, um, you know, otherworldly. I mean, it was just incredibly wow, bizarre wow. and crazy. And, and so you were, you were on the talk back going, um, excuse me, Mr. McCartney. <laughs> could, could you get a little closer to the mic? <laughs> oh, no. no, I mean, he was, he was a total pro and. Did you accidentally blast him with feedback in his headphones? Thank God. No, <laughs> no. The, you know, the, the, the biggest thing for me was trying to figure out as quickly as I possibly could what his, what his cue point would be. Like every time we were punching a spot, like how much pre-roll did right. I need to give him? Right. Because he was fairly particular about that. Yeah. Like he wanted enough to be able to get into the role, um, but not too much that he's just in there hanging out. Dude, <laughs> I was just trying to teach my interns about that here. It's so funny how like before you get that, you don't you don't necessarily get that. I mean, I mean at this point, I think you already knew what that was all about. You're just like trying to make it perfect for yeah. Paul McCartney. Right. But still, I talk about that for a second. What does it mean to get the pre-roll right? Some people are like, who are doing this for the first time, they just have no clue. You know, it's, it's, I find that it, it's not different on every session, but like the typical Nashville session where you've got session players on the floor, those guys just kind of expect two bars that you just give them two bars. And if you're on a click, that's super easy. Right. So just, two, two bars means two bars of music playing just before you punch into exactly, record yeah. and it's time to perform whatever is being fixed. Right. Right. So that's kind of the, the norm and they kind of get annoyed if there's more they run with it if there's less <laughs> you know they're they're all so good that they just kind of make it work and but, as a musician yourself what is your what is the experience of having the wrong pre-roll feel like um you know just the if it's too short it's a little jarring to be able to jump right in with the song with the music Right, you're like not even your your brain isn't even in the song yet. Right, yeah, you haven't your 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 clock hasn't caught up with with the you know the the beat of the music. And if it's too long, I guess there's the the possibility of being distracted or yeah, you know, being a big getting bored. You know? If I'm the one on the guitar, <laughs> it's a big possibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, uh, thanks for breaking that down. So Rockstar's pre-roll is really important. It's got to be right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was also singing in a tiny little closet that had no real AC. So it was kind of getting hot in there. And, and, you know, we're all very aware of his time and didn't want to waste any. So we were really just trying to crank through stuff. And, you know, we got, I don't know, probably four or five takes that all felt pretty good. And we said, man, we've got what we need. We're, we're all set. And he said, no, we're, we're just getting started. He said, we're really going to, we, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Yeah. He, he didn't say those words exactly, but. He likes I'm to sure drive he, the bus. I'm sure he threw in some Beatles song as a, you know, a joke or quote or something that's pretty funny at the time. Um, but, you know, he really worked hard on that song and, and really developed the character, which was really amazing to see. I mean, forget that it's Paul McCartney, just a person that is, that you've said, hey, we've got what we want and they want to keep going. Because they know that they're still developing this 
this thing and learning the emotion of the song, learning learning the timing or the cadence of of everything that's happening. Um, but it's Paul McCartney. <laughs> so, you know, he really honed in this part over the course of, you know, I think we probably worked in there for two, two and a half hours or something, just really honing this thing in. And it, I mean, it's incredible. It was really amazing to see and, and, and witness. <laughs> Did you consider selling the outtakes on the black market? On the there, you know, we, we pretty much <laughs> set them on fire, you know, burn, it, burn them, take them out, a, out to the, uh, to the yard and, yeah, there was some amazing stuff. Just, yeah, man. All right. So, and of course, everybody <laughs> wants to know, what mic did you use to record Paul McCartney's voice? So we took two, kind of a have a have a backup just in case. Since we were flying with all of our gear, we took uh, we took our Mastering Lab Tube Pre's GML EQ GML compressor. Um, so we had a, a stereo path for both, you know, a path for each mic, basically. And then we had a blue bottle with a B6 capsule, I think. And uh, a Telefunken 251 that Echo Mountain was kind enough to loan us. Um, so we we put both of those up and, and took both of them. I can't remember which made the record, uh, but they both sounded great. That's they both great. sounded amazing. That's cool. I'm sure if you have uh, you know a mic and you're like, this mic can now be said to have recorded Paul McCartney, you send it right off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool, man. Yeah. What a trip. What an awesome story. And then uh, and then you guys were done with that, and then you just go hit the beach. Yeah, we finished that. We went back to the airport, got on the plane, flew back to Asheville. I got in the truck full of gear and I drove all the way back to Nashville. Nice, you know, man. It was pretty, the most surreal day, I think. Uh, yeah. Oh, that nuts. was all in one day. That was all in one day. Wow. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so share some other recording techniques that you remember learning in that sort of stage of recording, working with Gary and stuff. And, and we're going to move forward from there. But what were some of the ways of recording like acoustic guitar that you remember learning about and, and being a n new discovery for you? Um, you know, not, not to give away all Gary's secrets, but, uh, you know, recording most things. Just give away like 99% of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, mostly being stereo recording, you know, every instrument is kind of recorded in you know, some version of a stereo setup. Okay, that's fascinating. What does that even mean? Like, where do we even begin to grasp the concept of a, of having our instruments be stereo? I mean, got two ears. True, true. You're typically listening on two speakers, so it seems to, seems to make sense. Um, what are some of the ways that you would record stereo? You know, trying to figure out what makes the most sense for, for the song. Um, but, you know, guitar... Instead of doing a wide left and right thing, sometimes it would be a top and bottom thing. Okay, so a mic sort of above the acoustic and a mic below the acoustic. Yeah. And then those might be panned out left and right to, to be, make a stereo image? They might be, and sometimes they might not. You know, depending, you could always vary the width of it, which was always kind of the nice thing about having the stereo field of the, of the instrument is being able to, uh, you know, manipulate the width and, and size after the fact if yeah. you want to. Yeah, because so, I, I guess if you're recording uh, acoustic and a voice, you know, it can feel very mono if you're just like, well, I got one mic on the acoustic right. one mic on the voice, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, totally. Um, all right, so uh, let's keep digging into that. Some other ways right. that you enjoy recording stereo mics on a, acoustic, on acoustic guitar. 
You know, I, I just like space. I like having the room. So ideally, you're in a room that sounds good that you're recording in. Yeah. So having having space, and this isn't necessarily a Gary thing, but um, being able to play with the distance to the instrument so that you're getting more of the ambience of the room with the mics without having to add a second room pair. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that it just adds another level of realism to the to the recording so that you're not hearing this direct thing that you either have to affect later or, I don't know, just, you know, it's just direct sounding. It's very... Kind of like recording a drum set. If it's too close, if it's too many close mics, then it doesn't feel real later and you have right. to sort of make it feel real somehow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I really enjoy using, using the space as much as I can. I mean, sometimes it, everything is kind of situational. So like a lot of the recordings I do now, it's a lot of live in the room stuff. Right. And you're, you kind of have to balance the the distance from the artist trying to gather the space versus, you know, I've got drums in the room or electric guitars or there's another acoustic player, upright bass. So you're really trying to take all those factors into consideration so that you're just close enough or just far away enough that you're getting enough of the, the ambience of each player, um, but also enough that their signal is overpowering all the others in the room. Right. Um, and I've, you know, I find ribbon mics to be really helpful in, in a lot like of a that. great rejection on the sides, right? Yeah. Really great rejection on the sides. And I mean, it's another thing that I'm almost embarrassed that it took so long to figure out, but how much more, even a figure eight ribbon rejects from the backside or rejects the room than like a U67 or, you know, any kind of condenser mic. So a condenser mic that's doing figure eight is going to pick up a whole lot much more of the room than a ribbon mic doing a figure eight. Right. Or, I mean, I've done, I've done recordings where I had a U67 up that's in cardioid and a figure eight, like an R88 for a vocal, just one side of the R88. And then thinking I've got the R88 for vibe and maybe I get to use it, but then getting into mix and listening to both and really ABing and realizing that the R88 has almost no room. Like it really, ribbon mics, I guess, just physically when you're pushing on one side, they have to kind of ignore the backside a little bit unless the backside is louder than the front side. Interesting. So it, it's, uh, man, it's it's a really cool thing to, to do. And when you've got a, a room full of players, as long as the louder thing is closest to the mic that you're trying to capture with that mic, it kind of makes sense to put up a ribbon. Well, so I think about... You know, classic recordings where you have a full band in a room and a mm-hmm. singer in a room and everything, and you're, you're always seeing pictures of ribbon mics. You know, maybe it was because condenser mics weren't prevalent back then. Right. Um, but but it's certainly the ribbon mics worked for those recordings. And then I also think about our guest, um, John Cuniberti, mm-hmm. doing his one mic series where he's using the stereo AEA mic, ribbon mic, to do that and actually capture a band all in a room. Yeah. And... It probably makes sense that, like, you know, trying to do that with a figure, um, a stereo figure eight condenser mic, the room might be just too loud and splashy compared right. to doing it with a ribbon. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I, I and I just love the way ribbons react. the The high frequency thing, you can always add top, and it just sounds so natural. Um, versus a condenser can sometimes sound hard or not. Just not natural. Like there's too much of something, too much sizzle or something that's happening that just doesn't happen with a with a ribbon mic. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder when somebody's going to invent a human ear mic. Ooh, that sounds weird. <laughs> that sounds creepy. I mean, you know, think about it in a good way. Whatever that means. 
Um, all right. So, you know, I, I waited a minute here, but I like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote to kick off the show too. You got anything that you want to share with us to kind of get us excited about hitting the studio? Man, inspirational quote. For anybody the... that's inspired you in, in recording and producing yourself? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you you never know who you're going to run into, who you're going to work for, or work with. Um, but to just be excited about doing it. I mean, that, I don't know. I, I'm not. Just have fun. Yeah, you got to have fun with it. If you, like I, Cowboy Jack said, you know, if we're in the fun business. So yeah, if we're not no, having fun, we're not doing it right. We're not doing we're our jobs. Fun <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I, that's something I try to say on the podcast in, in, you know, some other way. But, you know, the yeah. idea of just having fun, enjoy it. Because I remember, like, you're talking about the four-track stuff in the beginning. Yeah. And I remember that, you know, experience, my experience of some of the shittiest-sounding recordings I've ever done in my life with some of the worst playing and the worst-sounding instruments, you know, was extremely fun because it was like that first experience of doing stuff. And I'll take that all the time, man. Yeah. I just want it to be a lot of fun to do. It, I mean, it can be it can be exciting. It doesn't, we're not, I don't know. It, it's always weird calling yourself an engineer and, and feeling the way I do about sonic things the way I do. Like, I want it to sound good. Yeah. I mean, I, I always want it to sound good, but also understanding that Ultimately, if it doesn't feel good, if it if it doesn't translate some kind of fun or sad or some human emotion, that it doesn't matter. It can be the greatest sounding whatever, but if it doesn't make somebody feel something, then what's the point? Right. You're not going to want to listen to it. Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, and having fun with, I mean, you can have fun with the sad recording. You can still try affecting things differently and trying to, to, I mean, I feel like my job as an engineer, starting to figure it out <laughs> Yeah, I know, <laughs> after I know whatever, feeling. 15, 16 years, but, but understanding it more as an emotional role than, than just making stuff sound nice. Right. So trying to figure out what the artist was going for in tracking when they, why they wrote the song and then figure out what it is that I can do to help support that or improve upon it or, you know, enhance it. Um, so that, man, that, that to me has been the biggest lesson. And I think completely differently when I mix than, you know, just trying to make, you get, you go down all these crazy wormholes of trying to make stuff sound better or whatever. And at the end of the day, it's not that important to, on some level. Yeah. It's like the sound <laughs> quality is important, but only in its ability to help communicate the emotion of yeah, whatever the exactly. message of the song is. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, you know. If something's distorted, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a great thing. Exactly. I love, sometimes I finally remember to put distortion on right. things. And later I'm like, oh my God, this is the best sounding track that we did. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you, you running through a tape machine or a cassette deck or whatever for a slap delay or just the color. You know, you get hiss, you get things that are ugly that maybe aren't ideal, but maybe it's just the right thing to to help get where you want to go, you know? Um, so try not to feel bad about that. No, no, don't, don't feel bad about it. Feel good. Enjoy yourself. And what was the words of Viv Savage in Spinal Tap? Have a good time all the time. That was his <laughs> <Right>. advice. <laughs> all right. Hey, Rockstars, we're going to take a break now. We'll come back in for the jam session. 
Um, a reminder that we'll have links to stuff we're talking about in the show notes here with Brandon, including a YouTube playlist you can click on. And I think you have a Spotify link that'll go in there for your listening to your music. Cool. Great sounding records, dude. Thanks, man. Um, when we come back in, we're going to dig more into the recording and really get into some details, some nitty gritty. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. If you want to design and build a great house, then you're going to need great tools. You could build it with an old hammer and some nails, but it's a whole lot easier to use an air compressor and a nail gun. Well, the same thing goes for mixing. If you really want to create a pro-sounding mix, then it makes a lot of sense to start with a great toolbox of awesome plugins. This is where Boz Digital Labs comes in to help you get killer mixes easily, quickly, and creatively. Provocative will make your vocals sound lush and wide. Transgressor and Manic Compressor can help your drums leap out of the speakers. Weighty and Big Beautiful Door offer unique new ways to tighten up your tracks, while the wall will make sure your mixes are in your face and competitive. And my favorite is Sasquatch Kick Machine, which can transform your kick drum from sounding like a home studio cardboard box into the perfect punchy kick without using samples or triggers. To download your unlimited trial of any plugin now or get one of Boz's free plugins, go to bozdigitallabs.com and put the best in your mixing toolbox. Click the link below in the show notes to learn more. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting color and distortions. Make sure to check out the Black Hole series BH1S and BH2 with the awesome looking hole in the middle of the mic, combining innovative industrial design with meticulous electrical engineering to help your studio sound incredibly expensive for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, if you use the coupon ROCKSTAR, you will get an astonishing 50% off. I got one. You're hearing my voice right now on the BH1S. So what are you waiting for, rock stars? Go to jzmike.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, rock stars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Brandon Bell joining us here at the Toy Box Studio. And uh, we're going to dig into some specifics because we like to. Brandon, <laughs> you ready to jam, dude? Yeah, let's do it. 
All right. Um, tell us more about Southern Ground Studio, where you where you um, are, have been recording now for years. Uh, it's a beautiful location. What what's there? What if we walked in? What do we see? Yeah, we, so we've got expect? three rooms there. Um, Studio A is is our large tracking room. It's got an API Legacy Plus, amazing mic locker, tons of outboard gear, two tape machines, uh, plate reverbs, enough instruments to sink a ship. Um, you could come in empty-handed and make a record in in Studio A or C. Um, that's kind of my favorite part. Wait, there's Studio A or Studio C? Yeah, so well, Studio... What happened to Studio B? Would well, you guys, like, fly Studio... it to the moon or something? <laughs> Studio B's our mix room, so it's, you know, it's not really a place you'd track a record necessarily. It does have a small overdub space. Um, it works great for, you know, guitar, vocal overdubs and that kind okay, of thing. Okay, cool. So it's a room where if you recorded everything with too many close mics, you go into the other, the, the mix room to go make it sound like <laughs> right. it was in the space again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so Studio C is our budget, kind of our budget room. It's a small tracking space. Um, it's got four booths, same kind of deal. We keep enough instruments over there that you can just walk in empty handed and make a cool record. Killer drum set. So I think of what's in there now is a, a Slingerland Radio King that's pretty awesome and dialed in. And, you know, basses, guitars, acoustics, electrics, both. It's cool. Pretty cool. And, and A has the API legacy console. So it's kind of a cool, I guess, was it a church once? Is that what this yeah, space was? Yeah. I mean, that's the history of the room is pretty impressive. And I mean, my favorite studios have all been places that were converted from something else, in most cases, churches. Um, I just think there's something sonically and, and aesthetically there that's super cool. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, the building was built in 1903. It was a Presbyterian church, uh, Addison Avenue, Cumberland Presbyterian church for about 60 years. And then Fred Foster bought it in 1968 and converted it to a studio for the first time. Um, you know, so under his ownership with Monument Records there, they recorded, Chris Christopherson's first four records, a couple of Tony Joe White records, and, you know, I mean, some country legends. I mean, it's pretty amazing, the history of the building um, and the artists that they've had in. But, uh, you know, Mel Tillis and Roger Miller all recorded a fair amount of stuff in there. All the Gatlin Brother records, and Larry Gatlin records. Um, the um, Allman Brothers even did a record in there. It has <laughs> this kind of classic Nashville 70s country studio vibe. Well, I don't want to say just Nashville because I, when I visited um, Sam Phillips recording mm -hmm. where, where Matt Rossbang is running, it, there was a little bit of that same kind of use of space where you have like, you know, drums might be in their own little, uh, well, I want to say a booth, but it's not, it's less, how do I describe it? It's like if you walked into a restaurant, a Polynesian restaurant, and they had like fake rooftops coming down right, at yeah. you from the walls yeah. and stuff like that. That's the way the drum booth would be built, right? It's like this little room with a little roof in the bigger space. Yeah, it's like a hut. A hut. You know, yeah, we've got these, go. we've hut. got these little huts in the room that are our isolation booths. Um, so the you know, there's a small one that we typically use for vocals or acoustic guitar, or whatever. Um, and then the larger one was originally built for drums. Um, and it's kind of interesting, but the, you know, it's kind of this octagonal booth, this hut that is the booth and all the windows used to go up and down. So they had motors that you could raise the windows up. So if you just wanted a little bit of isolation, you could put the drummer in there and then pull the windows up. That's awesome. And you know, he would still be they kind like of old, leaking into the room. Old Cadillac powered window technology or yeah, something like something. that. Uh, we should we should dig in there a little bit more, but the motors are still mounted in the walls, but we've, you know, the the glass long got 
replaced a long time ago. I, I like the idea of just taking a car door and just installing it a wall and a wall just using the existing yeah. uh, window. Maybe. <laughs> That'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> um, and then there were also like um, bleacher style tiers off to the side, right? Where you could stand up on these additional platforms higher up. Well, ground, I'm not what? sure what the purpose was initially, um, but there is a little bit of a riser. It's almost like a stage yeah. in the, in the, uh, in the tracking room. Um, so there's another, what used to be the piano booth and is what we, now we use as the drum booth. Um, and there's like all, we keep all our keyboards up there and it's, it's kind of a cool spot and, and just nice to be able to break the space up in a, you know, kind of vertically or whatever. Yeah. I guess I always pictured like, you know, these older recordings where you have like a, a chorus of voices that sing yeah. like, like behind Elvis or whatever, and they're just standing on these risers off to the side. Right, yeah. right. Um, and then what, tell us about the cypress wood, because you guys have this beautiful yeah, so natural wood all over the place. It's it's pecky cypress, and it's uh, I guess it's illegal to harvest and sell now because it's uh, it disrupts habitats too much to pull it out of the water. But it's cypress that's fallen down into the, the bayous and I guess, you know, laid underwater for hundreds of years maybe. Um, but it's extremely soft. I mean, Cypress in itself is soft, but this kind of takes it to another level. Um, it's really soft, soft, and it's really, uh, asymmetrical, like tons of wormholes and, you know, weird angles and, um, definitely attributes to the the sound of the room in a cool way. Is, can we think of stuff like this? Can we think of a soft broken up wood as just sounding soft on to a microphone? How do you, what, what's yeah, your experience I don't know. That's about interesting. all these surfaces and um, sounds and stuff and how they, how to think about them in the recording? Yeah. I don't know if I would say it's like a microphone sounding soft, but the, you know, the reflections of the room are softer. Um, the room is kind less of broken harsh. up to different, yeah, less harsh. Um, I mean, the room is broken up into, there's some brick, there's some uh, plaster, and then a, a lot of Peggy Cypress. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a softer reflection. Um, and definitely with, with the, all the holes and the weird angles, it just kind of sprays it everywhere. So it's a, right. it's a really pleasing sounding effect. I think. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, um, let's talk about some of the ways that you record in that space. So you, I, you know, there's a picture on the website of a band all kind of sitting around in a circle playing acoustic singing. I think Zach, I think it's the Zach Brown or Zach and, and, and yeah, Zach band. Brown band. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about recording that way. What are some things that you enjoy about, you know, assembling people in a space. Um, dumb questions like, does everybody get headphones? Do you do it without <laughs> headphones? What does it right. mean that the microphones and the people are so close to each other? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's, it you know, it's all kind of situational. Um, like for that picture exactly, I think that was the Jekyll and Hyde record maybe. Um and it was one of those spontaneous things where, you know, we had set up for everybody to be isolated. Everybody had their own space um, to be completely isolated, basically. And there was something about this song that we just felt like, let's just, I think they were maybe rehearsing it in the room together. So why don't we just do it like this? Let's everybody just grab a spot. And I mean, there's eight guys in the band. So we have eight stations out around the floor. So it's already, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Everybody's right. got their vaults of guitars and their pedal Somebody boards. Somebody named and, Brandon has know. already put in a lot of work <laughs> setting up this other way of recording. Right? right. And, you know, we recorded a couple songs that way and then decided to make a shift. And just for this one song, I think it ended up 
we might have gone into that configuration two or three times for that record. All right, let's talk about but, that moment. So, because this is a special moment. Yeah. Too, so, um, <laughs> band is in a circle. They're like, man, this is feeling great. Let's record this way. Engineer Brandon hears those words and goes, awesome, but then goes, wow. <laughs> like everybody's, this is the moment. Everybody's ready to play the song right now and they're feeling it. How yeah. much work do you have to do? In that moment, how fast do you have to do it to get ready for, you know, eight people to record I mean, in a circle like that? It's a little bit frantic because you don't want to, I mean, as an engineer, I don't, I don't think you ever want to stifle the creative process. So you're always trying to think ahead of everybody. Um, so, you know, when building out, I mean, anytime you do a setup sheet, I'm always thinking not necessarily of what could happen. But when I pick a mic, I want it to be something that's going to be versatile enough that whatever happens, happens, and that thing's going to be able to come away with something decent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that moment, I'm scanning the room and thinking, okay, well, there's a U47 that we had up for, you know, ukulele, and we've got the whatever, the M49 that we had up for the, the potential for upright bass that probably wasn't going to happen, but here it is. <laughs> um, and you just start grabbing all these things, knowing that you've probably got enough mic cable on what's in the booth to just drag it out and have it close by. So, you know, all hands on deck, everybody's out grabbing mics while the band's still kind of working through stuff. And, you know, headphones or not, kind of depends on the situation. Typically, I'm a huge fan of no headphones. Um, I just think that's a way more natural way to record, especially if you're all in the room. I mean, that just makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's an acoustic... Yeah, performance in a circle. That's the way the it's normally performed. Right? Yeah, right. And I mean, just as a player, that's how you hear yourself. You're not sitting around with headphones on all that. I mean, most people aren't. Um, so I just feel like that's so much more of a comfortable way to perform rather than hearing yourself in this really unnatural environment with headphones on your head. Um, so I think in a lot of those cases, there was probably no headphones. Um I know for Sam Lewis's record, we didn't use headphones. We I would put really? a little bit of vocal nice. on a wedge for Derek Mixon to play to hear Sam's vocal. On but drums. now that's a record with a full band, drums, right. all that kind of stuff. So maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. How do you set up for a full band sound where you also don't use headphones? Just trying to position people, you know, finding the balance where where you're positioning people where you can kind of maximize their sound. And you're trying to minimize the others on a, on a certain level. Um, I, I kind of like soloing through the mics just as we're getting going and getting levels on everybody and just check and bleed. And to me, it's just almost perfect when you kind of solo through and the level of bleed is about the same on everybody's mics. So nobody's overpowering anywhere. Um, the, hardest, the hardest job in all of that is always going to be the drummer because they've got this amazing dynamic range where they can just, you know, pulverize everybody in the room. loud. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also this ability to play extremely soft and, you know, and still have feel. And, and I, I just love any opportunity I get when I, when there's a drummer that I can record who you can have a conversation over their playing in the room. Like it's pretty rare, unfortunately. Oh, like the um, Bernard Purdy shuffle. Kind of thing. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, like Derek Mixon does it great. Chris Powell does it great. There's, I mean, there's Taylor Powell does it great. There's a handful of guys in town that, uh, that get to do it, you know? 
I think that's probably more the thing. There's probably lots of guys that can. So what you're describing is drums that are quiet enough that you can talk while the drumming is playing yeah. and hear yourself. So uh, so therefore, it's they're pretty quiet. What are the things that happen to the drum set and the sound when you start playing at that volume? And what uh, what changes about you, the way you would record it or the mics that you would choose, that kind of thing? Um, you know, the the biggest thing for the drummer to me is whether they're playing quiet or loud is just as long as they're playing balanced. Um, and it's extremely, it's even more difficult to play balanced really quiet because there's all this fine motor skills to keep that balance. Like I, I know one, one instance we recorded a thing for John Prine for a, like a Spotify single and Chris Powell was in the room sitting right across from John. And after we cut it, I knew he was playing quiet. I, I mean, I knew how how much gain I had on the pre's. I knew he was playing quiet. But then I started soloing things after the fact, and I heard more of John's vocal in the overhead than I heard drums in Prine's vocal. Wow. Which is just remarkable. You know, and what that, kind of vocal mic might you have been using on John for something like that? I think I think it was a U67. Um, right, so pretty high-gain condenser cardioid. Yeah. And it was pretty, pretty tight. I mean, we're really trying to m- minimize any kind of bleed from other folks because we had electric guitar in the room and pedal steel and yeah. another acoustic guitar, I think. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to Chris after. I just said, what? How on earth? And he kind of showed me a little bit, but, I mean, he was hitting the drums with less weight than the stick falling on it. I mean, there was so much control in in how he played. But because he did that, he didn't need any kind of reinforcement to hear what John was playing or what the upright bass player was playing or you know, yeah. everybody was balanced within their little and space. And that was a no-headphone session. Yeah. Dig it. And then what about the distance apart between all these players for something like that? And so you're talking about drums, upright bass, John singing and playing guitar. And I a remember. pedal steel or and electric guitar steel. player or something like right. that. Right. So, so, okay. So where would you position those people and those instruments for everybody to I mean, themselves? I like, if, if you're doing no headphones, everybody really has to be close. You have to be within earshot of, of each other. Um, baffling is totally appropriate, you know, being able to put up a small baffle in between each person, um, and, and really thinking about your placement of those things, um, to be most effective. But I mean, having people really close helps because the bleed isn't distant. So you're not going to hear any big slaps or you're not hearing as much room as you would if you were, you know, trying to draw yourself all across the room. Like blasting a sound out into the room to bounce off the walls. Yeah. Um, describe a small baffle. A small baffle. That's a baffling question. <laughs> um, you know, anything. Um, it's I mean, a, it like could a waffle be, with a B, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Less delicious. You know, you can use anything, you know, thinking of like recording at home or uh, just out at some random space. You know, if you've got a couch, you can drag a couch in between people or, um, you know, couple sheets of plywood or, you know, anything that has mass and um, weight to it is helpful. Definitely having something that's a little bit more absorptive is helpful. Um, But uh, I mean, the baffles that we use are typically about six to eight inches deep and they have a layer of of absorption, like uh, 703 insulation that's covered in fabric and then mass, just dead weight in the middle. So it's Probably. So like almost like solid core door. Yeah, solid core door would be great. Like um, you know, you can get mass load vinyl relatively 
inexpensively and you you know if you're building your own you could put a layer of that in there and that really helps knock stuff down a sheet of drywall is great at, at stopping sound um and then you kind of you you sandwich it all together so it starts out with absorption and kind of goes to mass and then it ends up with absorption on the other side so you kind of have a two-sided what do you cover it with baffle. a fabric or like a perforated <clears throat> board kind of thing or? um i i typically go with a fabric approach it seems to be the easiest and most effective um, and then um, how tall? Whatever. So you've got a bunch of musicians that are sitting down um, in a circle playing together. Are these baffles, you know, six feet tall? No, trying to shoot for probably three, three to four feet. You so know, you think like about when you're sitting down in a chair. tight down to the ground kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Just enough wanna, to kind of cover mic position. That's the thing about building couple. baffles is for a studio is just remembering like, you know, do you want people in the studio to be able to see over these things and, right. and keep the eye contact? Do you need to put going? a window in them if they're six feet tall? Yeah, and then also <laughs> like yeah, or a window in them if they're, they're six yeah. feet tall. Or if you can see over them and see somebody's face that you're playing with, can you also see their hand on the guitar mm -hmm. strumming? You know, that's a, a lesson that I feel like I learned recently. What have you learned about the about line of sight for sessions, and and what are the some of the challenges that you have to run into and solutions that you come up with? It's it's been an interesting thing seeing seeing different people's setups at Southern Ground because I'm not always the engineer on sessions there, um, and you know people setting things up in ways where maybe line of sight for some people isn't that great. Um, typically, Nashville session players they don't need to see anybody. <laughs> I'm sure they they really enjoy seeing each other and appreciate it, but they they just have such a sense about what's happening. They know they they anticipate other people's moves a little bit. I think there's just so much understanding about what's happening that maybe sidelines aren't as important as if you're recording a, just a band, like a rock band or just a group of people who play together all the time. Um, having a, having a band in, they, I think they thrive on being able to see each other, that energy that they that they get from each other. You know, you're, you're a session on that level is, is different in that way just because there's so much more. I think there is, maybe I'm making it up, <laughs> yeah, it's all legit, but, I, man. but I feel like there's, there's a lot more of this. I'm, you know, playing on the edge of my ability and we're all working together and trying to really push this thing to be the best it can. Um, and being able to see each other and work off of each other's energy in that way is super helpful. In, yeah. in the end product, you know. So um, I was recently recording my own music with drums and bass in here. And um, I, I set myself up in the control room where I had great isolation. I could look through the glass and see them. They could see my face, but they couldn't see my hands. And some songs, uh, that was working fine and we were getting a vibe for it. But what I realized as a takeaway later was that there were also some songs that were kind of like, the pattern I was playing was kind of rock, you know, like, dun, 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 mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, in those instances, the bass and the guitar probably should just lock and play the same part, same, same rhythm. And I realized that by not making it so that we could see each other's hands, you know, um, she couldn't see what I was doing. Yeah. And so, it, you know, and the headphones don't always clearly, clearly at least not my headphones, <laughs> show you. And also my funky wah guitar sound and stuff like that. So that was just an interesting takeaway for me. And, you know, hearing you describe it with the with these great session players, they know what to expect of each other and maybe anticipate it. 
but in the band situation, maybe where there's music where like all the instruments should play the exact same strum pattern. Right. Maybe sometimes seeing that the hand movement is super important. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think you nailed that. Um, banjo. You've recorded a lot of banjo. <laughs> How do you like to record banjo? And um, do we go for the <laughs> the joke that includes the dumpster or something? I don't know. What are, what are some What are some good uh, instrument jokes that you've heard about recording? If you're man, any, I've, I've the, probably the banjo is something like like you you put it in a dumpster and record it from a mile away or something. Yeah, like that I've probably way. forgotten more banjo jokes than I know. Um, <laughs> there's always the one about the the guy, the banjo players. Somebody needs to help the banjo player. He's locked inside the van. You have to go, <laughs> on, you have to go <laughs> unlock it for him, let him out. Um, yeah, using those carefully on a bluegrass session. <laughs> yeah, right. I like the accordion joke. The accordion joke is about the accordion player who finishes a gig and then he's like real hungry and he goes and stops at Waffle House or something like that. And he's um, in there eating and it's late. And he's like, he's like, all of a sudden he's like, he's like, oh crap, I forgot to, um, what is it like? I forgot to lock the car or something like that. And he runs out there and um, sure enough, somebody has broken in or like he left his he left his accordion in the back of the car sure enough somebody has broken in and left a second accordion while he was eating (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually glad i actually remembered the punchline i just started telling it and i was like mid mid joke i'm like i don't really remember how to tell this yeah all right so banjo so recording banjo i mean banjo is uh i love banjo i'm a banjo player myself cool um, but banjo can be a challenging instrument. It can be a loud instrument on a session yeah. or, or even a quiet instrument, I guess, depending on right. you know, which one you're playing. What are some, where do you put the mic on a banjo? Which mics do you, do you use? How do you um, record Steve Martin's banjo? I think on Steve, we used uh, 582, which is a Neumann with a, I think we had a cardioid capsule, like an M70 or M40 or M94. Of course you did. The 582. That's yeah. what I was going to say. We were yeah. all going to suggest the 582. <laughs> no, I don't know anything about that. The one. M582 is, is a is a sleeper mic, in my opinion. I, I think it's... it's uh, Not anymore. It's on recording studio right. rock stars now. <laughs> uh, they're, they're fantastic sounding mics. Um, they have... A couple models have interchangeable capsules. So you can put an Omni. You can put a large diaphragm condenser on it. Um They've got different levels of brightness on their cardioid capsules, like the M94 uh, is slightly brighter than M70. Um, the uh, I, I'm pretty sure we probably had the the 94 on Steve's banjo. Um, I, I really like ribbons on banjos, and sometimes par- pairing two things, like having a ribbon and a 582, or some kind of open sounding condenser mic, and then just busting them to a track, making it one thing. Um, you get, you kind of get that guttural punch of the dynamic element, whether it's a dynamic or a ribbon kind of thing. And then with the condenser, you get all the bright, fast, transient right, things. Right. The pick so on the I string. feel like it's you a- get kind of the best of both worlds with that a little bit. Are you recording, um, Scrug style with finger picks mostly, or are you also doing, um, uh, claw hammer style? Thankfully, it's not a lot of the Scruggs thing. That really wears me out. Really? It's just the, uh, there's so much attack and so much brightness about picks, it it's because of the finger, finger picks, picks and yeah. it's extremely loud yeah um especially with a condenser in front of it um there's a lot of claw harmer i i love gut string fretless banjo it's one of the most soulful instruments i've ever heard i mean it's just it's weird to think of it like that but man there's some folks like dirk powell 
playing a, a gut string fretless banjo is just super, super cool. That's wild. Um, um, yeah, fretless. So, uh, you got to play, you got to play it in tune. <laughs> I mean, it's not in tune anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so the, the dual miking thing, I, I love that, uh, that lesson for miking where it's like, instead of thinking you need to EQ it and compress it to sort of bring characters in and out of, of a sound, it's, you've got these two different mics right? and the, the blend of those allows you to sort of bring out the detail and the brightness. I, or I think I might've heard Jakir King doing that a fair amount, picking mics kind of as for their color and their their sound, and then you you make a balance of those mics and you just print it to one track. So you get a sound that you like from those mics without having to EQ and mangle things, and then you just commit it that way. and And I I, I love that approach. I think it's uh and you know shoot if you need to EQ it still. <laughs> so now you know if you're working on a beautiful API console. You can bring up a couple of faders, blend it. Um, how do you send a blend from a console like that? Is it does it have busing built into it? Or yeah, something so like we're that? thankful. Uh, we're lucky with that API. It's, it's a twenty-four bus console, so you know we've got twenty-four buses that normal to Pro Tools, and then we've got uh, another twenty-four direct outs that normal. So we've got a fair amount of flexibility in that. But I, I love kind of committing on that level as much as I can. Um, there's so much cool stuff that happens in tracking that I want to capture. I want to be able to carry that energy along. Like we we're digging these effects for whatever reason. We kind of dialed a few things in. Let's keep it, you know, whether it's printing the effects separately or printing them onto the, whatever tracks they belong to. Um, I, I like busting things down and and I don't know. I just want to commit to a sound, commit to it and let's move on. I don't um, want to have to rebalance later. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> what about the way that you're listening back to all this while you're working? Would a would a way to use the a console like this API be to use it all for re- creating blends that get recorded into Pro Tools and now you're just listening to two to the mix coming out of Pro Tools on on two channels? Or do you like to break out Pro Tools back on faders and you know kind of build a mix on the console while you're working? I I've almost convinced myself of going to the two fader return thing and just using the console as as front end sending to the to Pro Tools or tape whatever. Um, but I, I just really like having the faders. I like busting stuff out. I, I print the mix the best I can. So, however, my small faders are never at zero. They're all over the place because I don't want the organ to be. I don't need it to be extremely loud. Uh, on playback and it's digital so there's practically no noise and whatever it's fine if if it's too loud and everybody's already adjusted to their headphones i'll just pull it down to pro tools but typically i try to get the levels to go to tape the way i want to hear them coming back so it sounds like it's within the mix already so my monitor returns are all at zero so even though it's all bust out i try to do stereo pairs so that my panning is in the box so the idea being that at the end of the session my rough mix is already done. So when the artist says, hey, can you rough mix that? I don't have to recreate anything. I pull it up, bust it all out one and two, create a master bus and bounce it. And right. It's done. Um, that, I, it's, I'm so over <laughs> having to, you know, the engineer at the end of the, a long, already long day, having to stick around another hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, to print rough mixes of right. everything. Right. It's just been a way to to make that whole process so much more efficient and, I feel like I'm leaving sessions with better, better stuff. Yeah. 
um, better it's funny how like recordings. as an engineer the the um, process of going in and going like oh I'm gonna mix this now right is kind of fun because you're like you start messing with stuff but then right. it kind of sucks because then later you're like man did I just screw this whole thing up or did it actually get better than where it was before you right know? yeah um, and I guess that's just a challenge we'll we'll be faced with forever but so I've heard this <laughs> this idea uh, presented many times of saying leave your faders at zero and record at the levels that put it in the right place for the mix already um, on the console. Do you ever give that same approach to within Pro Tools? So like, might your fader level in Pro Tools be still at zero? And if and if the the tambourine needs to be quiet in the mix, you're actually recording it just really quietly to, to Pro Tools? Typically, that's... I mean, I, I don't, I'm not super hardcore about it. Um, like I said, if we're tr- if it's a tracking thing and the organ was set at a certain level or, or tambourine was super loud. I'll just pull it down in Pro Tools because I don't want to... I'm, I'm always sending my mix to the headphones as as one of the options. Um, and then they have additive, more me right. kind of mixing right. on top of that. So I don't want to I don't want to tweak my mix too much after everybody's kind of gotten adjusted. So I'll just pull it down in Pro Tools. Yeah. But typically I try to leave Pro Tools at zero just in the event that that session goes to somebody else. They can pull it up, bust it out two tracks, and already sounds decent. So the mix that you're creating that's going out to the band and the headphones, <clears> is that coming straight off the console before it goes into Pro Tools, or is that the return of Pro Tools? That would be from the return. Okay. It would right. be the, it's uh, on the API, it's all sending from the monitor side. And then I have additive so I can feed extra drums so I don't have to listen to a right. drum heavy mix, but they have right. plenty of drums in their headphones. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you find the musicians typically want more of in their headphones? Um, you just sort of went I around. mean, for the longest time, the, the the biggest thing, everybody was always asking for more kick and snare, just for that reference point, just to make sure everybody heard where one and two was, or one and three, whatever. And is this with a session where the drums are isolated, or if they're in the same room, do people t- want that kind of stuff still? Yeah, tip, typically for both. Yeah, I mean... If if people are recording live in the room, very few occasions where where we'll have headphones. Anyways, um, in those cases, the drums are in the room and they probably hear enough without having to have it cranked in their headphones. Um, um, what about the drummer? Do you guys record with click tracks sometimes too? Yeah, um, click is a pretty common ask. Like most people are kind of asking for that. Yeah, and then um, who uh, you know? In my experience, the drummer always needs the most click yeah. posted in the headphones. Right. Having those, you know, we've got the Aviom uh Aviom 16 channel headphone mixers and that's that's been a really nice thing to have for for a room our size just so that everybody kind of can mix however they want. So there's enough space on the box to have multiple guitar setups so if you're doing overdubs there's space to go with it. Um you can kind of pile keys all into a stereo pair, vocals, bass, you know, a perk overdub channel. And in that way, everybody kind of has all the flexibility. So the drum, the drummer can be cranking his click track and then everybody, nobody in the, else in the band really has to listen to it unless there's some kind of drop where the drummer's not actually playing and keeping time. Right, and then you just leave a little bit in there so it's like this reference, but yeah. it's not, not loud. Yeah. 
This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle bundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, we talked about banjo. What about mandolin? What are some um, great ways to record mandolin? You know, it's, it's not. And, and did we mention that you've recorded Chris Thiele? <laughs> I have. He's amazing. He's one of, one of my favorite people. Um, can you tell us <clears throat> who he is? So Chris Thiele is, is the premier mandolin player in the world right now and uh, has won the MacArthur Grant um, a few years ago. And he's now the host of Live From Here on NPR. He's the leader of the Punch Brothers, um, which is now a Grammy-winning uh, band. And uh, just a phenomenal musician and, and person. But he's writing classical concertos for mandolin and um, I mean, God knows what he's doing. He's just rem a remarkable musician. I seem to remember that there's a great documentary about him or about the Punch Brothers kind of discovering this new sound and touring the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's on Netflix. I have to look for I have that. to check that out. Um, okay, cool. So how do you, what have you learned about recording mandolin? What do we just take 57 and just stick it out in the room somewhere? <laughs> if that's what you got. Um, you know, I, I like, uh, KM54 sound really great on mandolin. Uh, 64 sound great also. Um, KM84, if you don't have the other two. Um, 451 is a great option. So these are all small diaphragm condenser mics, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, we've I've used U47s on mandolin and I really like the results. Um, but if I had my pick, it'd be a, a 54. What should we expect to hear differently if we choose a large diaphragm tube condenser versus a small diaphragm condenser? I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time like really noticing size difference. And I, don't, I haven't really compared a whole lot like in the moment of one or the other. Um, to me, it's more of the, the EQ differences and how much of the room I'm hearing you know, what kind of rejection each thing has. Yeah. Um, I find that most smaller di smaller condenser mics are slightly tighter sounding than large diaphragm mics. Um, but you get more you know, of a high-frequency pick. Yeah, and, and slightly better at rejection on, on outside sounds, outside of the pattern. I think the, the thinking behind it, too, or the, uh, the physics behind it is a small diaphragm condenser the diaphragm itself can move more quickly. Right. So it can respond more quickly to the transient sounds of yeah. a pick and stuff like that. That um, makes more sense. 
whereas the 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 large diaphragm is a little more sluggish, but it can also pick up maybe more of the I don't know lower frequency lower frequencies material. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've I've really enjoyed KM fifty fours on mandolin. Um, okay, cool. Uh, any other thoughts about compression or treatment of mandolin? Man, I, where do you pan it in the mix? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, typically in bluegrass, it's kind of down the middle. That's your snare drum. That's your that's your backbeat. Um, so that's that's kind of the 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 bluegrass police will come chase you down if it's not in the middle. Okay, that's great. I'm glad <laughs> I asked that question. Let's let's uh, let's go right down that path. Where do the instruments? What are the instruments in a bluegrass band, and where do they go in a mix? Yeah, so uh, does it all get added up? Typically, upright bass, uh, banjo, mandolin, acoustic guitar, fiddle, and dobro would be a quick rundown of of what you might have, or some variation of those. Um, you know, bass and mandolin kind of down the middle, carrying the 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 beat of of yeah, the it's machine. Like the, it's like the drum set of of bluegrass. Yeah, and then the uh, the banjo and the guitars are usually panned out opposite of each other, typically, not always. There's no rules. <laughs> but uh, but panning those out from each other because they're they're more of the um, melodic and rhythmic instruments that are kind of acting as your hi-hats. And, yeah. Um, depending on sometimes the, drum, or the, the guitar is more, um, you know, chord note information and the banjo is more melodic or rhythmic or both. Um, and then violin, dobro, kind of somewhere in between those things with the real melody and harmony parts of the tune. Okay, so when you say in between, you know, here we live in a world where people talk about left, right, left, center, right mixing. Or right, LCRs, right. It's like hard panning for rock and roll. When we're doing acoustic stuff with maybe a uh, you know, bluegrass band, it's it's a lot. It's okay to pan stuff in the middle, you know, not all the way to the left, not all the way to the right, and kind of yeah, like sure. spell it out the way you want. Yeah, I mean, I, just trying to feel it out for the song, you know, depending on how how many words the singer's trying to sing and how many people are singing them. You know, sometimes if there's a lot of people singing a lot of words, it's, it can kind of sound heavy. Oh, do you sometimes record bluegrass bands that have drums in them too, or is it is it more? Yeah, common occasionally. To not have a drum that's kit? that's not super common. Um, it, you know, traditional bluegrass is really set kind of in their ways. You know, they don't, they like to hear a certain thing and, um, kind of experimentation with, with outside instruments is probably not, you know, it's kind of frowned upon, I guess. Um, now what about the vocals, um, on a bluegrass record, might the vocals be done afterwards as an overdub or are they happening live with the instruments? And does that mean that the players who are playing these instruments are also, needing a vocal mic and, and it gets the same panning as the instrument? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to really say every time. You know, it's all kind of circumstantial. Like the Punch Brothers, first, was it their first record? How to Grow a Woman from the Ground was the name of the record. And they recorded the whole record around two Telefunk and 251s. That was it. That was spaced stereo pair. And they balanced each other within the room. And they moved in and out for solos and for vocals. And like they, it was a, there was a choreography kind of that had to happen to mix the album as they tracked it. Um, that would have been old school, you know, that, you know, a lot of really old bluegrass would have been around a mic. Um, but now, you know, most modern stuff, most people are tracking their vocals after the fact. So everybody fairly isolated and, um, you know, going for lead vocals and then stacking harmonies. And, and in a lot of cases, probably doing harmonies one by one. 
Um, that's it's, the bluegrass records that I've worked on have been mostly artists doing their, you know, everybody does their part individually. Right. Yeah. I've run into that too, where it's like, oh, should we all go out on the mic together? And then a lot of times it's like, you know what, let's just break it out. Right. right. <laughs> so we're not going to, we're going to end up there anyway. Yeah. Um, and you get easier control on the levels and the balance and the tones and yeah, the pitch right. and the note, right? Um, all right, cool. Fiddle. How do you like to record a fiddle? Um, you know, it, I like, I like Coles on fiddle sometimes. Um, a KM64 can be really nice. It, you know, it's similar to the 54, but it's a gold capsule. And where, where does the mic go? Where, what? If we're, uh, yeah, is the fiddle player sitting or standing a lot of times? Most sitting and, you know, probably recording about a foot off the fiddle, foot to 18 above. inches above, right, right above, uh, you know, kind of right above where the, the bow runs across the strings or favoring where the body meets the, the neck meets the body that, that which is juncture. almost like the 12th fret approach yeah, of that kind acoustic of idea, guitar, yeah. that idea. How often do you? Put a mic at the twelfth fret for an acoustic and go like that's the sound. I love that. And how do you figure out where to put the mic? Do you put headphones on and like listen to the mic in real time and find a sweet spot or anything like I've, that? I've kind of I've kind of settled into a really extravagant setup that I, I don't always use, but it's it's really nice. And you can do it with any mics. You just need a system to be able to sum it or be okay with the fact that you've got three mics for one instrument. Um, but it's kind of that idea we were talking about earlier of having you know, mics with different EQ or different sounds and then being able to just blend them to what you need for the track. So having a, a ribbon element, a bright mic and a, a mic with really good mid-range punch. And for me, that kind of factors into being like a, a Bayer Dynamic M160, uh, a KM54 for the top and a U47 for the mid-range punch. Um, so the ribbon is carrying kind of the 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 blunt force of it. Like I just think of dynamics as having like, they're not capturing the transients quite as fast as a condenser would. So it's just a little bit more blunt about the, the, the punch that it has. And it also has really great bottom end. Right. right. And then the other mics are kind of carrying the other thing. So if you need it to be bright in the, in the track, you can push the 54 more. If you want it to be more mid range, push the 47. Um, and do you sometimes push these mics, you know, mid-mix, or do you tend to sort of find the right thing and then just commit to it? They're occasionally, occasionally they'll change within a song, but most of the time they, they stay put. Yeah. Um, if it's a, if it's a featured part of the song that needs to be kind of written, that, that could be something that changes, but typically they stay the same. Um, the great thing about that setup is all mics are in one spot and whether you're a session player or a novice, when you sit down to it, I think it's it's instinctual what you're playing to. Rather than having a spaced pair that may not be configured in an obvious right, way, right. when anybody sits down at that, they immediately understand that this is my focal point. Right. And for me in the control room, I know what those mics do and I can get the blend that I need to out of it. So for me, instead of having to go out and move all those mics around, I make the player move. <laughs> So I know when I, what I'm hearing, if I want less bottom, I have them scoot a little bit more to their right so the mics move a little bit closer to the 12th fret. Right. And if I need more bottom or mid-range punch out of the guitar, they can move a little bit to the left so it's a little bit closer to the sound hole. Right. And if it's just too thumpy all around, I have them scoot back. And what are some distances to those mics that 
it would tend to be. I probably the right range. start at around a foot, typically. So, um, you know, I think a discovery for me sometimes that's surprising is that a mic, where a mic can sound best on an instrument, is also where it can really pick up how bad the room sounds if the room right. doesn't sound so great. Right. You know, so then you begin to learn that, like, wow, you really do need a good sounding room. Yeah. If you got a great sounding space, you can pull back from the instrument more. Um, what are some tricks you've learned when, when the room doesn't sound so great and you got to get closer to the instrument? What are some things you do to make sure that it still sounds cool to you and doesn't sound, you know, wrong? You know, trying to... I guess the, the mic blend helps. Yeah, right there the lot. mic blend helps a little bit being able to pull out bottom and, and get a little bit closer to the instrument maybe and not having as much room. But if, if there's a way to quickly assess the room and throw a baffle in or something like that to kind of knock down some yeah. some slap or a buildup of of a note if it's possible. Um, you know, that's that's always nice to have a couple baffles around that you can just lean against a wall for that for that very purpose. Um but you know it's always kind of a moving moving target a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um what about voice and acoustic guitar? What are some tricks that you use to be able to record both of those instruments at the same time. I mean, ribbons are such great. I mean, they're such great tools for rejection like that and doing having two figure eights where you can kind of use the null to null out the vocal while it's capturing the acoustic. And then, you know, so you're pointing that mic directly at the voice, basically. And then the the vocal mic is kind of completely nulling, aimed at nulling out the guitar. Um so let's describe that a little bit more. So a pair of figure eights. So the figure eight rejects everything on the sides right. and it picks up what's in front of it. And then I guess some of what's behind it. Yeah. Right. So if you aim the mic up towards the voice so that the side is pointed at the guitar, then it's rejecting the guitar. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And so where do those mics go in that configuration? Is one up high near the voice and one down low near the guitar? Or the mics in sort of an unexpected. I kind of, I almost, spot. I shoot for kind of like an ORTF almost configuration. You know, where one is, you know, just below the voice pointing down at the guitar, and the other is at the voice, kind of aiming, you know, toward toward the guitar that way. Um, it kind of makes up somewhat of an ORTF. It's not quite XY because the mics aren't that They're close. They're not right on top of each other, but it's it probably ends up being in most cases a little bit wider than what our ROTF would be. Um, so that is, yeah. So the, so the mics, the two figure eight mics might be four or five inches apart or something like that. Yeah. You know, one eight, above the other. Know, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. Okay, cool. And is that for somebody who's standing and singing and playing or somebody who's, I guess when you're singing, would, your voice gets closer to the guitar, doesn't it? If you're sitting, yeah, it seems like everything is a little bit more compressed. Um, when you're standing, that definitely widens out a bit. Um, but I mean, I find that rejection to be so good that you could almost pitch to, you know, you can almost pitch the vocal after the fact. I mean, they're depending on the singer, if they're balanced with their playing, it's almost that good of rejection that you can, you can still tune. And would you do that kind of figure eight, uh, double figure eight rejection technique using ribbon mics primarily, or would that work with condensers sometimes? It works with condensers. Um, it's not as tight. The isolation isn't, isn't as good. Because um, it's course, picking up too much of the sound bouncing back into it's the It's getting mic. a lot more of the, the, the room yeah. than, the, than the, the ribbons are. Um, it's a little bit brighter. 
you hear a little bit more of the phasing between the two mics um, than you do. Part of that's just the isolation that the ribbons are so good at. Um, but condensers work great. And it, I mean, it really is remarkable that the isolation you can get using two figure eights, even if they are condensers. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that setup. It, it works really well and it allows you to still get kind of tight sounding stuff and you don't hear the phasing quite as much as you would if you'd put up two, just two cardioids. Okay, cool. I'm going to try that trick again. I haven't tried that in a <laughs> long time. And it's such a great, um, it's a great concept for, you know, rejecting the other instrument and trying yeah. to find that, that sweet blend. Um, do you sometimes have to flip the polarity on one of those mics? You, yeah, I mean, occasionally just trying to figure out what it, it, the ribbons. It's almost it in in some cases it's so tight that you almost don't notice a difference. in wow. polarity because um, they're not bleeding. If they're bleeding, right. then the polarity makes a big difference. Right? Yeah. So it you know, and it that all depends on the vocalist being balanced with their instrument. So if somebody's singing really soft and playing really loud, it becomes a little bit different. It becomes difficult. Um, so you end up with a lot more guitar in the vocal than you would otherwise. Yeah. But um, but yeah, always check and phase between those two to make sure that they're in in the right polarity if, if possible. Okay, cool. Um, Blackberry Smoke, Six Ways to Sunday, has an awesome electric guitar sound in the intro. Um, I don't know if you would remember that specifically, but what are some of your favorite ways to get a great tone on an electric guitar recording? Having a player that understands their instrument is... Paramount, you know. You wouldn't happen to be referring to Kenny Vaughn, <laughs> would you? I know you did an amazing record for him, yeah. man. T talk about that. Kenny Kenny knows exactly what he wants his guitar to do, that's for sure. Um, and the, the Blackberry Smoke guys, the same. They they all have a... They just understand their rig. They know when they, they push a certain way that the amp is going to respond a certain way. I mean, they have this incredible understanding of what's happening. Um and the ability to manipulate it and make it do what they want, which is kind of the most amazing part. Um, so from a mic standpoint, I mean, everybody knows what a 57 sounds like on an electric guitar. It's kind of a, a go-to. Um, I really like a Bayer M160 in addition to that, and I'll, I'll often put those two up and bust them together. Would you put the mic's <clears throat> elements right next to each other yeah. for something like that? Typically. Now, where does it go on the amp? Do you mic the volume knob up on the top? <laughs> Where do you put the mics? Only when you want it loud. Uh, I'll, uh, I almost always start in the middle of the cone. Really? Like dead center? As close to it as possible, just because that's the, it's usually the brightest part of the amp, and it keeps me from having to add top. Sometimes if it's like a real chicken picking telly kind of tone, it's way too, there's too much bite. Right. And it kind of gets thumpy in a really high-pitched, weird way. Now, uh, also, in all fairness and describing the context here, Rockstars, uh, Brandon, you're not typically doing rock bands with all kinds of overdrive distortion right. and, you know, rip-your-head-off shredding tones where the amp needs to be listened to from 12 feet away to sound like the guitar sounds. Right. This is a little more intimate and, and controlled tone, right? Yeah, you're getting you're getting a little bit of a a pedal boost, maybe an overdrive, but most of what you're hearing is the tone of the amp and the guitar. You know, there's, there's not a lot of stuff typically in the path. Um, so it's a lot of smaller amps. It's a lot of Princeton's, uh, Tweed Deluxe, Blackface Deluxe. That's, that's probably the biggest amp that I see in Blackface a lot of cases. Deluxe. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get one of those. Yeah. They're so good. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I start at the center of the cone just, just for reference. So I know that that's kind of my brightest point that I don't need to eat, add EQ. And then I'll move around the cone as needed. Um, usually once you get those two mics, you know, close to each other, right at the center, all you have to do is kind of sh- push with a small amp. It's easy to shove it over a little bit. Right. That's the, that's get, the good takeaway you know, is like, don't go move the mics, just scoot the amp a little yeah, bit to the side. Yeah. Um, that seems to be the quickest and easiest to, to make an adjustment rather than try to phase align your mics again. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, that's one of the biggest tonal changes you can do more so than changing guitars or changing amps is changing your mic placement on the speaker is really, or changing speakers really has a huge effect on the, on the outcome of the sound. Um, I'm always struck by yeah same thing like moving it slightly moving the mic even if you're just doing is easier if you're just doing a single 57 right where you can listen to the guitar now move the mic back a couple inches Mm -hmm. and turn the gain up a little more what does that sound like you know try all these different spots until you get something that kind of gets exciting it maybe that's a little easier to do if you're recording yourself and you got all day to play around with it if you're on a session you guys are getting ready to rock you got to probably have your sound up pretty quick yeah that's i mean that's I think about it a lot, and I wonder, I mean, nothing against the way Nashville makes records. It's a preference. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's so dialed in to what they do. Like, everybody's kind of perfected their thing on a certain level. Like, all the players have this perfect rig that does its thing, and all the music, you know, all the engineers kind of know their gear to a certain level. That It's just all so dialed. You know what you're going to get. And because of that, it's like you don't get an hour to get sounds. You don't, you, it's, it's like you get 30 minutes tops to get all your drum band, sounds, right? to get the whole band. Yeah. So it's really a, a matter of having a system that you really know and understand and are able to move extremely quick with. Yeah. Um. So, you know, when I get drums coming in, I kind of already know where EQ is going to land to a certain degree. So just cranking stuff before I hear a note of, of anything, you know, um, just so when somebody comes in, sits down and plays, they can, play groove for you know five minutes and then they're done you've got what you need that's quite different from doing the rock records yeah. that i've done where we book an entire day just to get up set up and get drum sounds right that's kind of a dream you know i mean yeah, i don't know if it's a great dream or I not mean, i mean is a grass is greener depends on where you well, are and you. it's not just not just drum sounds per se i don't really want to do that i don't know that i have patience for that but just spending a day getting sounds and really experimenting with the overall tone of what your what your record's going to be, yeah. Like, is that? I mean, look, on one level, it feels thing, like right? yeah, looking for a thing. But on one level, you're you're starting the day, and there's the pressure to get started, to get to be creating something. But on the other hand, to be able to spend that time, to have the luxury to spend that time and really craft where the rest of the time is going to go, um, I just I, I don't know. I I think there's really something special in there that uh that music needs you know yeah spending that extra the, i mean it's not a lot of time in the grand scheme of things but i think spending that little bit of extra time to explore something and try to find something a little different yeah. is extremely important well i remember hearing um jakir king talk about recording the punch brothers mm-hmm. and them taking you know a day of time or whatever amount of time it was to just explore different mic choices and combinations yeah. on these instruments and like come up with unique palette of colors for Chris Thiele's mandolin before beginning, you know, just yeah. this like, okay, now we've got a thing 
that becomes part of that. And I've also experienced in doing rock band production where sometimes um, finding a new instrument amp combination, something like that, is that that'll kick off like days of inspiration and songwriting yeah, right. and recording. It's just you now you have this new palette of color that you can work with. Yeah. And I think that can be really cool too. And you don't need every color there is. All you have to do is a little bit of website design to realize just how impossible that becomes. Or right. or try to choose a color for your house. <laughs> right. And then they hand you that paint color palette at the at you know Home Depot yeah. or Sherwin Williams and you look at them just like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? This is like a million colors. How am I supposed yeah. to choose one? I mean, I think I think limitations in music is really important. I I kind of recently went down the wormhole of trying to find a cool vocoder. And, you know, started reading, just as an example, but started reading all the forums of people nerding out on vocoders, which is kind of ridiculous in my opinion, but whatever. I went down that hole. Did you anyways. get the original Roland? Yeah, the, the whatever, VC330. <laughs> um, but I found this interesting article by uh, Imogen Heap, and she was talking about that song Hide and Seek that she did that was all on the vocoder. And it like brought it all back into perspective almost immediately. But she just said logic or pro tools, whatever her rig is crapped out one day and she felt like she had to do something. She had to be creative and produce something. So she looked around her room and she found this little kind of, I don't even know what it was, but it was like a boss all in one workstation kind of thing that was still in the box. Hadn't even opened it. And it happened to have a vocoder on it. And she created that song that day on that thing. It wasn't, you know, she didn't seek out anything in particular. That was just what happened to be there and what was inspiring to yeah. her that day. And it's super cool. I mean, like it or not, but I, th I think it's really cool. Um, but to me, it was like, oh, it doesn't matter. But having a limitation on some level, like she was limited to whatever was in the room. That she, I mean, she couldn't use her regular rig for whatever reason. So having that limitation created something else that was really cool. Well, I dig the fact that here you are recording all these Americana and, and you know, country records and stuff and doing records with Zach Brown, and you're thinking about image and heap and vocoder sounds. <laughs> so it makes me want to ask you, like, what are some, um, what are some ways that you've been thinking about wanting to mangle sounds in the studio? How are you wanting to mess things up these days? I just, I don't know. I want to be, I, the part of mangling things is uh is interesting to me because it it forces me to be more active. I, you can do it with plugins. I just don't get it it's hard to feel satisfied about that and I feel like with plugins you have this this world of constantly tweaking and you n maybe never feel right about it but with a hardware element like printing a tape slap there's something about that that's just immediately satisfying. I don't know if it's because the the slap timing is familiar, but because we've heard it on other records, because it's a certain tape machine or there's, but there's just something about it. You can put a, a tape delay plug in on Pro Tools and for whatever reason, it just never feels the same. I don't know what that is. It's weird, but I love it. So you're talking about the benefit of using a real tape slap. So how do you set that up? Describe to the rock stars so I'll how set you, up, from, uh, from beginning to end, how you actually make one of those. So I'll just create an extra track in Pro Tools. I'll create a hardware send from Pro Tools, so it's going out to the tape machine. Um, a hardware return from the tape machine to an input on Pro Tools that's now assigned to that new track that we just added. Um, 
And then I'll set the tape machine. The tape machine, though, I use the most is the ATR-102 because that's what we've got in the mix room at Southern Ground. Um, but setting it up, and the great thing about that machine is it has multiple tape speeds, so you can go all the way down to whatever three and three-quarter speed. Um, and very speed, too? It doesn't do very speed that okay. I'm aware of, which right. I've been really trying to dig into. So you can select some different speeds, but you can't, you can't fine-tune it to be in right. time with the track. Yeah, tempo. that's kind of the most amazing thing about it is that it's not likely to ever be perfectly in time as a slap um which maybe that's what i love about it the right, most. but right. uh but being able to change those things and then sometimes being able to feed back from that channel that we're the new channel that we're recording that's coming back from the tape machine so we're feeding a vocal or instrument to the tape machine while it's on uh while the it's recording that sound and then playing it back from the reproduction head so you're getting that delay of the input right. to the output, right, basically. Right. So what, however far apart those heads are on the machine. And then it goes and the, into and the track. tape speed. So if you do the slow three and a half or three and a quarter tape speed, it's taking even longer. It's to go a really long, to the slow, yeah. I forget the, to the, the to time, the but it's a, it's a healthy delay. And also just, just thinking about it, three and a quarter is, I think that's cassette speed. I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's part of that cassette. Yeah, sound. but it's half inch tape, so... <laughs> But uh, but then you also have the flexibility of adding that same hardware send to the track you're recording to do a feedback loop. So it, it's the initial slap of the machine, but then you also have the slap part returning back to the machine. And the more you push, the more it feeds back on, on itself. So you start to get a tail, a delay tail out of it, which sometimes is cool and sometimes it's not. So yeah. being able to play with that as you're going, um, I like it because I'm out of the chair. I hate sitting in a chair and mixing. I really like being up and and mobile. I like moving around and trying different stuff out, using guitar pedals on, you know, inserts of things. Just just trying stuff, trying to see how I can push it and you know, just to the just before it breaks. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the goal in my opinion. I want to get to the point where it's too far and then just maybe pull it back just a touch. So to describe the the real analog tape delay again in the feedback loop. So Rockstars, you have a signal that goes to the tape, it records on the tape, um, delays a moment, plays back, comes back in on a new, new track, and then sends out again and records the tape and then plays back. And, and it's doing that. So the first hit that goes to the tape and starts delaying might bounce through the tape and come back to you like five or six times if you have a pretty long yeah, feedback really loop. But feedback. The, the other cool thing is that I wanted to mention is that each time it does that, it kind of degrades a little bit. It's yeah. like it's like doing a um, a Xerox copy. We don't really have Xerox copies <laughs> anymore of a copy and of a copy and of a copy, and it starts to like crumble and turn into this degraded yeah. thing. But that's part of what makes a tape analog tape delay sound so cool is that it it goes yeah, it's constantly kind of getting a little darker sounding. and a little bit more faint and a yeah. little bit more grainy and yeah, it's just. Super cool. Yeah, so um, just uh, want to make sure everybody was aware of that. Yeah. Um, upright bass. What do you want to say about recording upright bass? We haven't even talked yeah. about that yet. Um, always having a great player, um, a great instrument. I, I really always try to shoot for one mic just for phase issues, but sometimes you really, depending on the player and the type of material they're playing, sometimes you need an extra mic on the fretboard so that you hear the notes a little bit more you're getting really great bottom from yeah. the bottom end but then getting a little bit more articulation from higher up the fretboard 
Um, or maybe not higher. Well, what does the articulation the sound like? Does it sound like click, clack, click of the strings being pressed down on the fretboard, or does it sound like like the tone of the string? If the player's the playing cleanly, you're not going to hear the the click, clack, clackiness of the bass. Occasionally, they they sneak through because it's a bass, it's upright bass, bass, upright bass. But typically, you're hearing the front of the note. Where you, the low frequencies, it's really hard to hear a, a note front because it's just this big wave, this big mass of yeah. a sound. But that high, fre- more high frequency frequency stuff is, uh, you know, it's you're hearing the front of that note, so you know there's a defined beginning and end to each note, and maybe a little bit of sustain of the note too. Right, and that is one of the things about upright bass that makes it so cool as an upright bass is that it doesn't sustain like an electric bass does. It yeah. doesn't go boom. It's like Boom. You know, it's quick, yeah. right? Yeah. You like my my upright bass. It's really good. Air, air bass, Rockstar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, that's always a thing for me because like sometimes I've I've found myself wanting to record upright bass and I'm trying to force it to be more like an electric bass. And then right. later I'm like, wait a minute. I just killed the song and the mix and everything. It needs to go back to Well, and, and you you end up pulling out all those noises, all the stuff that you're trying to avoid too is, you know, I mean, it's a big instrument and there's a lot of, it's just a lot of stuff around it, you know, and you're standing by it, you might hear somebody's buttons on the back of it or whatever. The more you compress and draw all those, all those artifacts out, you kind of got to be careful of that yeah. a little bit, but you sort sometimes of it's fun. Up the sound. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Dig it. Um, if, do we talk about drums enough? Do you want to talk about how you like to record drums? As minimally as possible. I don't I don't like a whole lot of stuff. I don't want to deal with rooms after the fact if it doesn't need rooms. Um but I I really love a mono overhead. Um just for the punch. Get so much punch out of the snare and kick drum and toms with with that that the, the stereo thing. I don't know, there's a place for it and I use it sometimes, but I really do just love a like a one or two two or three mic thing. Yeah. I like overhead kick snare kind of thing. I'd, okay, so where would you put those three mics? Just describe that. Um, kick drum out in front. I hate the sound of the inside of a kick drum for the kind of stuff I work on. Um, and does the kick drum have a front head on it with a hole in it or not? Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, sometimes I'll point it kind of toward the center top of the of the head, kind of pointing down through as if I were kind of looking at the beater. Um, kind of using that, it's a cardioid mic trying to, aiming it down a little bit to try to use the knoll on the back of the capsule so I'm not getting as much of the ride and cymbal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe drape a blanket over it if I have to. Um, but I really like the outside of the head, I'm trying to position that mic so that I'm getting just enough attack from the inside and all the good bottom loveliness of the, I mean, I want to hear the tone of the whole instrument. Right, right. Um, what mic would be a good choice for a mic like that? I love a D12, D20. Something like it's that. It's a dynamic mic. It's dynamic, yeah. c- kind of old, somewhat fragile, I suppose. But they're they're not open. They're not bright mics. They're really, you know, it's a pretty heavy roll-off on the top, but they have this amazing amount of bottom end. Um, the, uh, you know, snare drum would be kind of your typical snare drum mic, and it's almost, almost as a safety, and just in case I needed it. So um, some of the rock stars listening are going to hate that answer. Going to be like, "What? I, what is a typical snare drum mic?" Right. So I'll put up a I'll put a fifty seven up, and okay. I'll put it uh, 
depending on the style of music, I'll either put it under the snare just to get the bottom or I'll put it on the top. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom, it can be really cool um, just for that bright splat to support with what the overhead's getting. The right. overhead's so the really overhead's low. really kind of the top of the... Yeah, exactly. I the like overhead's low. It's out. like I go with like overhead, uh, forehead height right. of the so, drummer. So, so if the drummer leans forward, he's going to bump his head. Exactly. Exactly. I, I want to be head. invasive. Yeah. <laughs> I want the drummer to know that I'm there. All right. So do you ever have the drummers like, like oh, yeah, I don't know, you know, they do these big like fake yeah. air drum fills and you're like, you're like, dude, we're not going to do giant drum fills in right. this song. I can't spin my sticks with this thing in the way. Um, yeah, I, I try to be accommodating and, you know, I mean, I want them to be comfortable. I want them to feel like they can play and not worry about hitting stuff. Yeah. Well, I um, like that, you know, the concept of the forehead height mic is it's mimicking the head of the drummer where the drummers, it's similar right. to what the drummer's hearing. Yeah. It's going to be really close to where their, where their ears are and what they're hearing. Um, especially if it's a no headphone session. Right. The drummer's ears are, that's the definition of what this drum's Yeah, that's how like, he's right? balancing himself. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. that you know, the, the low tom, depending on the style of music, sometimes need, it needs an extra mic because the high tom is just naturally so much closer to the, to the overhead. I really try to balance it so that the overhead is somewhat in between the two toms, but the high tom is almost always more full-bodied. Yeah, it seems to sing um, in that overhead mic a lot. Yeah, and, and sometimes having the low tom not sing as much works fine for some styles of music. Sometimes it's just having it in there and riding it in the mix to, to make it speak a little bit better is, is enough, um, certainly for a more dense Americana thing. What's the mic like that, that you enjoy putting on the low tom? Anything. I like 421s the most. Uh, they're They're really great at rejecting and tight sounding. Um, and they just kind of have a, a natural girth to them. Natural girth. Natural girth. Um, awesome. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we've been going for a long stretch here. Why don't we um, kind of wrap it up and and close out? And I'm going to um, take you to our final question. And we'll go, this one will be hypothetical. All right. But uh, we're going to take the, the way back studio machine and go back in time, you're going to find young Brandon <laughs> recording on his four track. And you say, young Brandon, I've come to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? Man, I don't know. You know, hey, man, I don't know. The thing that I wish... Uh, the thing that I wish I knew, the two things that I wish I knew earlier on was the amount of time I spent lusting after gear was kind of wasted. Yeah. Like I really, I really wished I had spent all that time just doing it right, you know, with whatever, like the four track was amazing. Um, but all the time we had the four track, it was like always trying to get to that, the Fostec digital thing or the, the Elisa's. 24 track digital thing, yeah. you know? Um, but I mean, there's, it's so much more about doing it and experiencing it and, and understanding that the, the energy about it is so much more important than, than having the right gear or whatever. I mean, it's really just doing it, figuring it out. I mean, you can make something sound cool with anything. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just got to do it. And that, I mean, to me, that would have, that would have been super helpful. I mean, I did it just maybe not with the same veracity initially as I got into it. 
Isn't that a dinosaur? The Verasasaurus. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, dude, thanks so much for being on Recording Studio man, Rockstars thanks for with us. Um, Rockstars, again, I encourage you to check out the YouTube playlist in the show notes. And then um, I'm making a mental note to include the Spotify link there too, because Brandon's uh, record discography is, sounds awesome. You're going to totally cool. enjoy hearing Thank all you. this stuff. And uh, how can the Rockstars find you, learn more about you? Where should they... Uh, who are they supposed to email if they want to come into Nashville and need to make a, a hit record? Um, you know, you can email uh, booking at southerngroundnashville.com. That's a great spot to uh, to get in for Southern Ground. Um, you can reach me there. I'm 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 there pretty much all day, every day. And uh, except for here right now, except for here right now, I don't know what's <laughs> happening right there, there right now. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm, the lone Instagram holdout. So I'm, I'm not there. <laughs> nice. But, awesome. uh, but Southern ground has a presence on Instagram and, and, uh, and Facebook as well. So, um, and then the website for Southern ground is southerngroundnashville.com. 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 Okay, cool. Well, again, dude, thanks so much. Um, rock stars, uh, please, uh, check out the links in the show notes. And then, um, if you happen to be listening to this on YouTube, make sure to hit subscribe and, and a uh, notification bell and the like button. And uh, drop in a comment below, too, and let us know what you think about recording acoustic music. Brandon, do you have any questions for the rock stars that you want them to drop in a comment about? I don't know. What, you know, what what cool techniques do they have for, for recording acoustic instruments or or just getting weird? Like, what what inspires you to, you know, to, yeah, what, I don't even know what the... Like trying to, to like kind it. of we were talking about mangling earlier. You yeah, like to like mess up a cool acoustic. Yeah, I, I want to know about all that stuff, like piano treatment. That all man, right, that's what it. I'm excited about. Let's we talk forgot about to that. talk about piano. We'll talk about piano next time. Yeah, right. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks so much, Rockstars. Thanks for listening, Brandon. We'll see you around the studio, dude. Man, thanks for having me. All right, cheers, man. Kill him. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.